From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, episode 21. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. So hello and welcome to The Spiel. My name is Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. And uh, I think we've got a great show uh, ready for everybody today. Uh, thanks for everybody for uh, giving some good feedback on the new site. We're going pretty well with that. We'll get into that a little more in the mailbag. But um, I think we've got two two interesting games to talk about in the, the list today. Uh, not We're not going to be quite so glowingly positive as we've been <laughs> in the past. <laughs> And, and you probably won't expect it yeah. when you know the names of the games that we're actually <laughs> going to take off the list. So. Yeah, so th- we've got a, got a couple good ones. We're doing uh, Sheer Panic and... Um, Marvel Heroes. This week, so um, you'll have to <laughs> have to weigh in and see if you agree or disagree with us. But, but but we're getting ahead of ourselves here, so before we get to the list, um, let's, let's just jump right in with uh, news and notes. Cool. Game News and Notes. So exciting news on uh, the board game oh. front. I've got some news that uh, it may be old news to a fair number of you um, by the time this episode hits the airwaves. But for those that don't know, uh, the big news out of the United Kingdom is that there is a new edition of Talisman, the the classic fantasy board game coming out in October of this very year. Awesome. <laughs> My jaw just kind of went, oh, fell on the floor when I saw that, because it's just such a classic, awesome uh, fantasy epic adventure game. It really, I almost would say, defines the genre of all the other kind of fantasy epic adventure board games that have come after it. And it's been long out of print. They they did a third edition that didn't do so well, and I think probably mostly because of the the popularity of the the more recent adventure board games like Runebound. Exactly. Um, or, oh, geez, I can't even think. There's so many that have sort of are talisman-esque in a way that have De- had popularity. Whole- They've, you know, started a whole new trend again and have decided to jump back in. So here's a little um, canned text from the... Um, Games Workshop was the original publisher. They have kind of an offshoot, a subsidiary now that's their publishing company that handles their magazines and uh, role-playing games, and now they're doing board games Ah. as well. So I think there's at least the possibility that if this goes well, we'll see even more even new board games, but possibly reprints of some of their old classic titles, I mean, some of the ones that I just paid hundreds of dollars for? (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) Thanks, Dave. (laughs) You're taking one for the team there. (laughs) Um, So here's the canned text. This is basically from the press release from them. Black Industries, which is the name of their offshoot, um, are very excited to announce the launch of a brand new edition of Talisman, releasing in um, 2007 October. The classic Talisman game is back and it's better than ever. Talisman's enduring appeal is that of a traditional fantasy board game and more. Players soon find themselves taking part in an epic quest of brave deeds, daring encounters, and death-defying battles, which deepens as the game unfolds. 
First released in 1983, the game continues to excite and maintains a strong following with a thriving internet community. The new edition of Talisman will appeal to fans of the timeless original and will also create a new following of would-be adventurers. Mark Gascon, the head of Black Industry, said, This is the best edition of Talisman we have ever produced. It's the return of a genuine classic fantasy game, and I'm proud to be announcing its comeback. The gameplay is based on the very best aspects of the previous editions, but with added extras such as the new speedy play rules written by the the legendary Rick Priestley. The game looks fantastic with fabulous new artwork. I know fans of the new and old will love this edition. I'm jazzed about this. I really think that, you know... If they do exactly what they said they're going to do, the best parts of all three and a half of those, you know, one times that they put it out, man, That's, this has so much potential. It's scary. Yeah, because I mean, if anything, the only knock you could maybe say is that mechanically it is a very simplistic game, yeah, and right. you know, I wouldn't mind if they sort of updated the mechanics a little bit and made it a little bit less of a roll and move type game. Not that I mean, I love classic talisman for what it is but if you're gonna reimagine or re-envision it why not take that go that extra mile it seems like that's exactly what they're going to do since he said they have that kind of a new speedy version maybe what we're used to and then there's going to be a step up right you know Um, The other piece of information uh, that I wanted to let all our listeners know is that the new Talisman is actually going to be available for not purchase, but a prototype is going to be on display at the upcoming toy fairs that are going to go on around the world um, just right after this episode comes out. So starting January 24th through 27th, it's going to be at the London Toy Fair at the Games Workshop booth, Uh, the Canada Toy Fair January 27th through 29th, the Nuremberg Toy Fair, February 1st through the 6th, and then the New York Toy Fair, February 11th through the 14th. So, if any of our listeners out there are either in the UK, or Canada, or Germany, or New York City, uh, we would absolutely love to, to know more about this game. If you get a first-hand report, send us an email at steven at net. Or Dave at thespiel.net. And, and or you know, if you can take a digital picture or something and send us some, some pictures, we would oh, we yeah. would drool and thank you very much. If you could that would be great. give us a scoop <laughs> on that kind of information, that would be awesome. So uh, there's my there's my news and notes for that's, this week. That's <laughs> awesome. Long time in coming, can't wait for it. Yep. <laughs> okay, my little piece of news here is a game called To Court the King. It was co published by Amigo and Rio Grande Games. It should have been out in the fall, but unfortunately, due to some dice and card misprints, it's been slated to come out finally just now this month. So we'll have to cross our fingers and see if it finally makes it out. I remember you mentioning this game before. It's, it's kind of had me jazzed for a little while and because it has dice in there. <laughs> you? A dice game? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it was designed by Tom Lehman. It's for two to five players, ages 10 and up. Retails 30 bucks. You can get it for $20, $24. To Court the King is a dice game in which certain dice rolls will win you the support of characters. These characters range all the way from the lowly jester all the way up to the king and queen themselves. Um, it's really cool. It has a... I know I hate to say this because your eyes are going to roll. It has a <laughs> Yahtzee-ish mechanic. But now forget that I said that and I'll get back to the game. But I had to say that. Basically, at the beginning of the game, each player starts with three dice. You're going to roll your three dice. At When you roll those three, you're forced to set at least one aside. 
You can set more aside, but you have to set one. If you set one, obviously you're going to re-roll the two, set another one aside, re-roll the third, set it aside. When you have those three, think of those as kind of a formula now. You can now look at all the available character cards, and if you fulfill the formula for one of those cards, you can choose it. That card will now give you special abilities and or extra dice to roll on future turns with which to acquire more character cards. Sounds really neat. All the way to the point to where one player finally um, acquires the king or queen card. When this happens, it triggers the final round, and the final round now is each player using all their acquired characters to do one final last roll to see how many of the of a like number that they can roll. And if I can roll 15 fours compared to Steven's 12 threes, I win. <laughs> Simple, easy. I'm really looking forward to this. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I think this would be... if. If it sounds, if it's as good as it sounds, it would be an awesome replacement to, to Yahtzee and those oh, type yeah. of things. It seems like a game that you could get anybody to play, you know, even if they're not, you know, necessarily right. gamers. But you know, I love dice games as much as I like heavy, meaty Euro style games. So yeah. I'm really looking forward to this. That's funny. It kind of has something in common with one of the back shelf games ah, that we're yeah. going to talk about too, and in a weird kind of way. We'll get to that a little later. But that's that's kind of that sounds cool. Definitely... So to court the king, hopefully, will be out this month. I'm looking forward to it a lot. Cool. The List Over a decade ago, we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. Each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100 and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, Life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. So the games on the list this week uh, share, unfortunately, something in common (laughs) that we don't like to see in games, and that is horrible rules. Painful rules. In one case, the game is actually very redeemable, Despite the game succeeds despite its rules, not because of its rules. And the other one, <laughs> I think the jury's still out on on right. it. Um, I think it's going to appeal to a very limited audience. Yeah. So um, the two games that we're going to talk about um, on the list um, this episode are Sheer Panic and Marvel Heroes. Um, we're going to do Sheer Panic first. So let's just jump right into that. Sheer Panic uh, was um, came out in two thousand five. Gordon and Fraser Lamont are the designers, the Lamont brothers. Uh, Zach uh, Verlog, or Mayfair Games, is the publisher. Um, three to four players. It's about 45 minutes to play, and you can find it online for about $24, which is, for what you get in this game, is an excellent, excellent yeah, deal. The bits are awesome. Um, so, Sheer Panic is a wonderfully visual and surprisingly strategic little game that is fun despite its horribly organized rules. The first thing you'll notice about this game, of course, is... The sheep. (laughs) There are four pairs of colored resin cartoony sheep plus a black sheep. The sheep are nearly two inches square and two inches tall and have an incredibly nice finish and and heft to them. They just, they they feel great in the hand. I mean, they're just, they're they're chunky. I don't know (laughs) what other word to use. Um, There are also two two special smaller sheep, um, Roger the Ram and the Shearer. Um, but we'll get to those in a minute. 
Um, each player has what I'll call an action board that depict 12 actions that are possible during the game, wooden counters to cover up the action board, and a scoreboard which also shows the four different fields that determine how the game is scored. Um, the sheep are placed in a 3 by 3 grid with the black sheep at the center when you begin the game. This is the flock. Um, the flock is then randomized by shifting two sheep based on the roll of a die. Sheer Panic is really, essentially, uh, a series of four connected mini-games. Your job in this game is to know how, where, and when to best move the flock to score the most points. In the first field, you score points for having your sheep next to each other. In the second field, you score points for having your sheep in the row closest to the flirtatious Roger Ram. <laughs> um, in the third field, you score points for moving your sheep next to the black sheep. And finally, the fourth field, you score points for keeping your sheep in the rows farthest away from the shearer so that they don't get shorn. <laughs> um, so on your turn, you're going to decide which of the actions on your little action board you want to do, and you place a counter on it to show that you've taken that action. In other words, each of the 12 actions can only be do done once per game. The actions have great names like Lamb Slam and U-Turn <laughs> and Wool Rule, each action allows you to move either your sheep, other sheep, or an entire row or column in the flock. Thus, on any turn, the flock, or at least part of it, can be moved in any direction depending upon which action is chosen. Most of the actions appear twice on this action board that you have, but there are two actions, boing, which allows your sheep to jump over other sheep, and the U-turn, which allows you to rotate the entire flock 90 degrees, only appear once. The main strategy in the game thus comes from deciding when to use each action to your greatest advantage, because once you use it, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> You're not going to do it again. Um, so each turn in the game unfolds like so. You pick an action, you move the flock, you reassemble the flock if part of it becomes separated, you score points, and then you move the little flock marker towards the next field. When the flock marker reaches the end of the fourth field, the player with the most points is going to win the game. It's important to point out that the other element of strategy in Sheer Panic is reassembling the flock. After you take your action, if any part of the flock is only touching on the diagonal, the sheep are not side to side, in other words, um, then those sheep are not considered part of the flock anymore. Before your turn ends, it's your job to bring the flock back together. If a sheep is separated, you choose which direction to slide it to bring it back into the fold. If it's a larger group that's split off, you roll a die and you move it either orthogonally or diagonally depending upon what you, the result of the die is. Once you get the hang of this kind of reassembly process, you'll begin to realize that you may want to actually intentionally break up the flock in order to rearrange the sheep in a way that will score you more points. So okay. that's a really uh, definitely important strategy. Moving your sheep and then breaking the flock up so that so you, you can, can rearrange it in your in your in the best way that you can right. for your little colored sheep. While each field does kind of play like a separate little mini game in one sense, you really have to keep one eye on the flock marker since the scoring rules change the minute it crosses the fence into the next field. In fields one and three, scoring happens after every single turn, so you want to get as many chances to, as possible to cash in. In fields two and four, scoring happens twice when the flock marker reaches a certain number, so you have a little time to kind of rearrange and orchestrate the, the flock to the best of your ability and to your advantage. Now, this game is a little involved. 
but it's by no means at the top of the complexity scale, I would say. But the rules to this game would make you think otherwise. They are really poorly organized, and in some cases so confusing and contradictory, I had to consult the online forums just to make sure that we were playing correctly the first time through the game. The biggest problem, I think, is the action board and the icons, both large and small, that are used to depict the actions. The actions have cute little illustrations, but in many cases, the illustrations really don't give you enough clues about what they really mean. Icons, after all, are supposed to be kind of a visual shorthand. They should be easy to decipher, and these just just don't no. measure up. In one case, two very different small icons have only one very subtle difference in what they allow you to do in the game. I think you may struggle with your first game because of the rules, but I think you'll come out of it wanting to play this game again. Put simply, it may look like just a game for kids, but Sheer Panic is a fun little strategy wolf in sheep's clothing. (laughs) So there's kind of an overview and my kind of two cents worth. Um, Dave, weigh in. What do you think? Well, First of all, I'm certainly glad I didn't have to read the rules. (laughs) Yeah, I took the bullet on that one. (laughs) Exactly. But uh, this was really cool. I, I had seen it at Gen Con. We kind of knew what it was about, but until you get a chance to play it for yourself, I mean, it absolutely is just an abstract strategy game, you know, with this covering of these cutesy little sheep, and you just think, oh, I'm going to sit down and have fun with the sheep, and it hurts your brain. <laughs> it's the, the way that you um, move around the flock and try and orient your sheeps to the best of your ability for the scoring thing. That time is just, is just crazy. And with what do we have? We had three of us playing yeah, when we played. Yeah. And uh, it's just agonizing to figure out which one of those um, actions you want to do because once you do it, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Not just for the round, for the entire game. Yeah. And that's that's something unique. Usually when you have actions to spend, it's for a round or for a turn, not for the entire game. Yeah. And so once you play one, goodbye, see you, don't get used to it. Mm-hmm. So it, I really enjoyed the, the game a lot. I'm, the little figures are... You can't so emphasize fun. how cool they are. Yeah, They're yeah. just the, the fun little, to manipulate. The little Roger the Ram has a little red rose, you know, like he's courting all the shit. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of looking here, baby. Yeah. yeah. How are you doing? <laughs> exactly. And the, the scoring is merciless, I would say. When you get to the, uh, to the rounds where you only score a couple times, it is really, really hard to make sure that your sheep are where they need to be when the scoring time comes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I guess maybe the thing I didn't emphasize enough is when you pick an action, there's also a number on the action little uh, icon on the board that indicates how far you move the flock marker. And there are different numbers on the different actions. So especially on those ones where you're only going to score twice, it becomes down. it comes down right. to... When is that flock marker going to hit the the spot that's going to start scoring points? And that really it, it's a fun right. balance thing because you may want to do a certain action, but then suddenly it puts the flock marker in a spot that does isn't good for you. Right. So it, I'd, I'd th- say the the time that they didn't spend writing the rules, <laughs> I it appears that they spent play testing because it seems really well balanced. It's lock solid from yeah, that standpoint. Every time you want to spend points. It's either not enough to get it to the scoring thing, or two, or the ones that are enough are not what you need to do. So it's yeah. really well balanced. To me, the hallmark of a good strategy game like this is that it makes you, it forces you to make tough decisions every single turn. There's not a turn where you can basically just sit back and go, well, e- even if you see there's an obvious move on there on the flock for you to do, there's 
the pot because you are going to give up that action. It's going to affect how right. you're going, how the rest of the game's going to go. So it gives you pause to go. Well, am I absolutely certain that I'm I want to get rid of that action, even though it seems like it's the most obvious thing to do? It really gives you pause to to step back and make sure you're making the right decision every time. And that's that was very. I was surprised. I was really surprised yeah. that it had that kind of depth to it. And as as you get like later in the game, and people start using up all their actions, you can actually start to see what people are going to have to do in future turns, and the strategy gets really crazy when you start having all that information available to you. Right. It's, it's really cool. On top, I guess the other thing I didn't point out is you're never going to actually do every single one of those 12 actions. Right. So if you keep saying, well, i I got to save my Boeing for late in the game, you could get to a point where if that flock marker starts moving towards the end of the game, you might not even get to use some of your actions. Right. So you have to weigh... You know, you want to use it, but not too early, but make sure you actually get to use it so you don't get hosed by not getting to use the really, really cool actions right. on the on your board. So uh, the, I guess the one other thing I'd say rules-wise about it is that there is kind of an element of randomness that on certain points on the scoreboard, there's a die that makes you randomly rearrange the the uh, sheet board. It's called a lamb slant or a sheer panic right. uh, die roll that there's certain spots on the board that are marked with a little red marker and whenever the flock marker ends on that after your whole turn is done you roll this die and the whole thing's going to get reoriented so I, I do like the fact that it isn't just a complete pure strategy yeah, game but there, there is an element chaos. of randomness you can get everything set up quite the way you want and then there's always the chance that that die is going to hose you and the flock's going to get rearranged in a way that, that completely and I, I messes like you that, up if I remember correctly that it's not guaranteed randomness either there is no. a chance that you'll have some control over that based on what you roll right so there could help you yeah exactly so it's really neat um i would i would highly recommend <laughs> if you can find someone who already knows how to play that's the exactly. absolute <laughs> ideal way to learn to play this game because once you've played it once i would say i mean i've played it a couple times what would you say dave having only played it once do you think you could sit back down and basically know oh yeah you know how to play absolutely and if going back to the icons after having played it once or twice i could probably even go a year without playing it and come back to this game and not forget anything if those icons were if they had done just a yeah, little bit that's... better job you know the, when i first first saw that one little icon i, w I was going to ask you where the spinner is <laughs> you know because it looks like a little spinner but yeah. it has nothing absolutely to nothing do to do with, with that you know, it's like who came up with these? Yeah, and it's not even that the illustra the illustrations are actually pretty cute. Yeah, but just have like a little. I've seen other games that have like a little diagram of what you actually do with your pieces, so that you could see. Oh, you yep. can take your sheep and move them in a certain direction. They're just vague enough that they don't help the person who's just learning right. how to play this game, and they're just vague enough that if you, even if you have played a couple times. Those icons you're gonna you're gonna remember despite what those icons exactly. tell yeah, you, right. <laughs> not because luckily of them. the game is good enough that you will get past all that and yeah. I think really enjoy this game for the price and for the level of strategy and the tough decisions it makes you play and it's just the uniqueness of it I think it would be worth checking out. Sweet or sheer. <laughs> <laughs> so the rules were bad, oh. but the game was good. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Okay, second off the list tonight, and by no means did we pick two games that we thought had a bad rules connection. Yeah. It just turned out that way. Accidental connection. <laughs> so the second game is Marvel Heroes. 
It was published in 2006 by Fantasy Flight, designed by Marco Magi and Francesco Nepatillo. It's for two to four players, ages 12 and up, retails for 60 bucks. You can get it for between 40 and 48 dollars. So in Marvel Heroes, each player controls a team of four superheroes competing to solve mysteries, rescue innocent bystanders, and defeat evil criminals. At the same time, each player also controls one of four villains who is trying to accomplish his evil master plan. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So the object of each game is going to depend upon the scenario that you're playing. The game ships with ten different scenarios, but knowing Fantasy Flight, I can only guess that there is an expansion, at least one expansion there has in to the be, yeah. So, um, the scenarios set the rules for how many rounds the game is going to last. Are there any special rules to this particular game? And how many victory points are you going to need to win this particular game? Uh, so, first of all, uh, the game is played on a very large, well, in my mind, a well-designed, well-thought-out board. Um, It represents the island of Manhattan and some of its surrounding areas. It has a spot for pretty much everything, and trust me, there are lots of everythings to keep track of in this game. You've got your your victory point track, your round marker, your action point marker. You've got a story track, a headline track, a trouble track. There's pretty much a track for everything. But regardless of what we think about this game, the board is very well organized, and there's so much stuff... You have to have it like this or you're going to be in serious deep trouble. Yeah. Especially on your first playthrough or two. Um, so what I'm going to describe, as I said before, each player has a team of superheroes. And so I'm going to describe kind of what each superhero is. You get the little pre-painted fig of of each character and then each person gets a villain. The other important thing that each each person gets is each figure has a reference card that is very important to the game. It gives you all of the hero's stats. On the top, you've got like these three special abilities that each superhero has, and then there's a series of combat numbers associated with each of those special abilities. Then in the center of the card, you have three main areas. Um, you've got a ready area, which is your the, um, what I want to say, the currency of the game are called plot points. Mm. So you're going to spend plot points to put your superheroes in the ready area so they can attempt to solve those mysteries and defeat those criminals. Then there's a section in the middle called the supporting section. If you pay a, a certain amount of plot points, you can actually put your superhero here so he can support one of you, one or more of your heroes in attempting to solve these mysteries. And then in the center of the card, there's a recovery section. And you can actually pay, uh, put your superhero in the recovery section um, either as a result of being wounded or as a result of attempting a special feat, and he would end up back there. Then at the bottom, you have a series of numbers that kind of let you know what mysteries or what villains your particular superhero are best suited to try and solve. So imagine having all of that stuff for four superheroes and a villain. So when you sit down to play, you've got a lot of numbers to crunch and a lot of stats right from the get-go. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> 
Um, so now I think the best way to describe this game is to kind of take you through a typical turn since you kind of know that you have superheroes, you're beating up on stuff and you're trying to get victory points. We'll just kind of break down a turn very simply and then we'll discuss <laughs> it. So you'll notice that there are lots of phases and sub-phases and sub-phase-phase-sub-things. <laughs> it just goes on and on. But you can break it down into um, there's three main phases. You've got the round setup phase, and this is very simple. At the end of a round, you've depleted a lot of stuff on the board. So in this particular phase, you're just going to fill everything back up on the board. It's pretty easy, and you're actually going to assign the arch nemesis and the first player, which we'll talk about later too. In the second phase, it's called the planning phase. This is where you earn that currency, the plot points, and then pay it back to redistribute your, your heroes out on the board. And the cool thing about this phase is it's done simultaneously, so ev everybody can do it at once, and it really doesn't take that long. Then you get to the meat of the phase, which is the mission phase, which I believe our mission phases ran about an hour apiece. Yeah, yep. As insane as that sounds. Yep, I think you're right, because <laughs> we only made, we made it through, I think, three rounds before the end of the right. game. Right. It was a bit crazy. So the the main portion of the mission phase is that um, each person gets five action points or five action rounds. And so I would get to do one action, then Stephen would get to do an his first action, go all the right way around the table, comes back to me, now I get my second action. We all get five actions. The actions are movement, troubleshooting, medical treatment, story action, and use a special ability. Now you can use these actions in any quantity that you want. So if you just want to do five medical treatment actions, that's fine. You can do that. We're not going to describe all these things. The main one is the troubleshooting one. That's where you're sending your hero out to the board. He's going to try to attempt to defeat a criminal or a villain or solve a mystery with the aid of either one or more of his fellow superheroes in supporting roles or not. Now this actually is kind of neat. Because the first thing you do is you determine a threat level of this particular crime or villain. And once you determine the threat level, you have a chance to lower it. If you can lower the threat level to zero, then bam, you just solve it, you know, easy. However, That's that doesn't do. happen very often. Usually you end up with a threat level um, left over, which is the threat level itself becomes the currency for which... All of your opposing players can now play villain cards and backup cards and all types of effects to try and make this particular mystery or this crime really hard to defeat. So if that happens, then you go into the combat, which is just this series of rounds and initiatives. I think, first of all, um, the hero gets initiative, and in that particular round, only the criminal can take damage. Then you flip-flop initiative, and only the hero can take damage. If they're both still standing, then you go into what's called the outwit section <laughs> where they can both take damage. And if you're still standing after that, then you'll go into yet another round. Long story short, <laughs> exactly. Long story short, if the hero's victorious, then he's going to win the headline with X number of victory points. If not, he's going to crawl home into his recovery space, tail between his legs. And that is basically the name of the game. It's just that over and over and over there are crap loads of cards in, in each of these things. There's a lot of neat things, but I think they kind of overwhelmed us with um, the 
what do you want what do you want to call it just the minutia yeah, yeah the minutia is a great word exactly yeah. so i'll let you take over Gosh, what can you say where to, where yeah. to start on this exactly one. it's just there's a good game hiding somewhere in marvel right. heroes but it's yearning to be free of these rules i think I mean, thank God I, you know, I got the easier one with sheer panic this week and and learning the rules and teaching you because holy crap, I mean, there's just no way we spent what I think the entire game session was six hours, but an hour of that was set up, and at least two, maybe an hour and a half half. of that was you trying to parse through the rules and explain it enough that we could actually start. In a lot of cases with these kind of games, you feel like well. We can just kind of start and get the flow of it, but there was just so much stuff to try to cover and keep track of that there wasn't really a way to start without us kind of having a basis for knowing what the turn was going to go about. So almost, you know, literally over about half the time that we spent trying to play this game was spent setting it up and just trying to figure out the rules. And that's with someone who'd actually read the rules several times over before we sat down to play it. Exactly. If you want to play it correctly from the get-go, because as we said before, there was only three rounds. Yeah. So you couldn't afford a round and a half of learning by that time if you did something wrong. Holy cow. It was going to be too late, so it's pretty important. And we're patient game players, and, you know, have an attention to detail. It's hard to imagine a group of people having as much patience as we had trying to actually do it the letter of the law and follow the rules as printed. Um, I I think in Gen Con, we wanted to play test this, and every time we walked by a Fantasy Flight booth, the table was packed. I think what we just didn't realize is that it was, it was the exact same, same people the whole freaking day. <laughs> the fact that they had their head, their hands like <laughs> firmly planted on their foreheads, just like squeezing their brain, should have been an indication right. that exactly we we were in and for something I, other than I what we the, expected. The, what I like to see in rules is that as you read through the rules, you start to get an idea of okay, you do this, then this. Now I'm understanding how to play. But what they would do, they would say, okay, in this phase you do this and this but we'll explain how to do this later now you'll do this and this and we'll explain how to do that later and then you can do this and this and we'll explain how to do that later but there was four pages of you're going to need to do this and this without an explanation (laughs) yeah you finally realize that the main the meat the huge gargantuan best part of the game is the combat it's on the last page (laughs) it's on the last page but the but there was the phase that you are going to actually learn combat is within the first couple of pages. So it was just kind of organized really bad. Yeah, I mean... Explained really bad, and I think a lot of situations came up for us that really, honestly, weren't covered in the rules, and you just have to, after you've invested all this time, you still money. just have to get... And money, exactly. You still have to guess at some things. Yeah. And I, I don't like that at all. Yeah, I, I don't understand how some of these things couldn't have been dealt with in playtesting with right. this game because they're not minor inconveniences. They're things that just the game, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily broken, but it's just no. it's not fun at certain points because it just bogs down to the point. I think the biggest strike against it is that for you would expect with this kind of Marvel heroes and you've got these different teams of superheroes that um, there's not going to just be so much downtime between right. your turn. I mean, it, you know, like well, Dave described, we had like three full rounds of the game where you each get these five actions. But out of that hour, with four of us playing, we, you know, which is maximum, I think that's the maximum number of people that can play. Right. 
15 minutes maybe was actually your turn out of that hour right because it just took that long to try to parse through and get to you know okay well now this is what i'm going to do okay well now let's figure out how that works you know one person's going into combat okay there's 10 more minutes gone <clears throat> and I that, thought, that's not good you know when out of a three-hour game you literally only an hour of that is actually you taking your turn and having kind of an active part in exactly. the game that's well, that's and I just thought not that the, the mechanic of every person having a villain that they were gonna basically you were gonna get to take part in everybody else's turns. But there's <clears throat> basically a specific villain for a specific group of heroes, and that person is the one that ends up getting to do most of the stuff, which is so kind of cool. It's neat, but it does give you a lot of downtime. Now, maybe after you've played three or four five games of this and you're super comfortable with everything and you can fly through it but um who's, i don't know who's gonna actually make it to that yeah, point who's gonna make it to that point right to me i guess i mean <clears throat> if you were a hardcore <clears throat> comic person and i mean yes. comic book person and you really really you know wanted to play this game because of how you know how it relates to the comics and the superheroes then I can see you maybe sticking out. Or if you're somebody, because there's people out there when they sit down and play a game, they love to play five-hour games. Yeah, if you, you know, know going in that that's what you're getting into and you don't mind, sort of like I said with Sheer Panic, that the first time is just going to be kind of a a brain <laughs> killer that, you know, if you're willing to struggle through that, then probably the second, third, fourth time is going to go much more smoothly. I, th- I think something that we that was very funny that we found out near the end of the game, each villain has his master plan that he's trying to enact, and it's broke up into three parts. I think it's the prologue, the center section, and the conclusion. I can't remember what it is, but mm-hmm. we didn't... We didn't really look at those cards until towards the end of the game because we knew we weren't going to get them till the end. And then we actually all kind of looked at them and we realized that the conclusion of all of our evil master plans was to deduct five victory points from <laughs> our team of heroes that we were the arch nemesis to. I can't Which would just even, extend the game I another. can't even imagine if that would have happened. We're like, please, nobody enact their master plan. Yeah. <laughs> I'd punch someone right in the head if they did that. Exactly. <laughs> please let it stop. Okay, you just win. Exactly. Which I thought was, that, that's the other thing I thought that was weird, that I figured that there was going to be kind of victory conditions for the heroes, but since you're also playing the villains, I know in some of the scenarios uh, you were showing me, maybe there are... Right. Cases we just where played the, villain, the basic scenario. Villain was, but I think every time if you're playing, I mean, you're sort of playing kind of two games at once, which I think is actually the biggest strike against this game. I think you could actually fix a fair amount of the game by removing, by making a villain player, a la sort of like the Sauron expansion Adventure does with Lord the, of the Rings, Lord of the right? Rings, where it would be really fun to have one person who's in charge of all four master villains, just like every, you know, another person has all four, you know, of the fantastic four or whatever. You would have so many less headaches when it comes to your turn and other person's turns where you just have your heroes to worry about. And the villains just have their villains to worry about that. I think that the game would probably flow a lot more smoothly and it would be cool because you've always got, you know, what he could go, he could play on any person's turn. He really doesn't have a turn in and at, in and of himself. The villain wouldn't, right. but maybe his conditions are always just, if any villain can get his master plan all the way to the end, then the villain character wins and it would actually provide for, I thought it was weird that, you know, it's kind of cool that you have these competing superheroes trying to solve crimes, but it seems like there should be some incentive for actually or, the different heroes to, like, team up 
if they can, like they share victory points or something. Right. But it's basically there's none of that. There's just it's completely competitive and non-interactive in that way. I've right. got my group, and it's as though the other groups almost don't even exist in the city at the same time that you're there. And that's right. that's just a misstep, I think, in, in just the concept of the game. You should have that interaction between the teams and things, I think, would be... There's that, fodder right. there for fun that, that was time. just missed. And I think any... I, I don't think either of us have a problem with five or six hour games. No, no. But for five or six hours, you better be having a good time. It better be fun. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And and I just don't think this did it for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't absolutely hate this game. Don't get me wrong. I think there are redeeming qualities to this game. But the the problems with this were solvable, eminently solvable through playtesting and just streamlining the rules. It seemed needlessly complicated. A lot of the bookkeeping all and the stuff that you do, was crazy. I, you know, I, I'm all for it if it ju- if it's justified in the amount of fun right. that you're going to have. The whole planning phase is certainly setting you up for how the rest of the turn's going to unfold. But there's just so many things to to kind of keep track of that. That to me takes away from the fun instead of being sort of the build up to the fun. If that makes no, sense, that absolutely does make sense. The only uh, the story track I think is worth mentioning too because that's just a wasted mechanic. Yeah, you have these cards that you turn over that basically once a turn you can just decide as one of your actions to take the card and if it matches the little logo of your particular superhero set. It counts as a victory point. Yeah. So if you got lucky, like Jason had a bunch of the Fantastic Four ones yeah, out, just came right up. He could have had victory. victory he, he was victory. a third of the way to victory for basically doing nothing but going victory point. Right. Victory point. Victory right. point. I mean, what is the point of having right. that mechanic in the game if and it's just? I mean, to me, that just means they realized, oh, the game's too we long. To, we have to we have, have, some to have some way, way to, to ratchet up the the victory points yeah. on someone because there is a, an opponent <clears throat> can take a story action to hurry up and move that top card down so he can't just do that. But then he'll just turn around yeah. and put it right back up. Yeah, and I think there is something where you can trade three or four of those cards for one of your special to abilities. put one of your power ups into called. play and. You know, those can be pretty beefy, too. But, uh, you know, I don't think we're unjustly no, no, knocking this. I think it seriously, you know, had some problems. And the bummer was that it was potentially really cool. I mean... Oh, yeah, I was, I was way you know. looking for. I mean, I even <laughs> I have to take back, I think it was the the episode before the before that, maybe the one before that, where I was like, oh, I got Marvel Heroes, and it's yeah. about superheroes. How could that be bad? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I was sorely just disappointed and frust- frustrated, I guess, is the way to describe it. And I'm also, I know, that the, I know the game. figures were painted, and so you want to take care of them. When I open the box, each figure... Has its own little place that it's sitting in, and I'm Which like, should be cool. I'm like, wow, that is really cool. And then try and get those damn things out of there yeah. without like maybe breaking some. I mean, they're like seriously stuck in there. Once you take them out, you're never going to put them back in yeah, because you, you, you feel like you're going to break them when you take them out. Yeah, they might not break, but it just feels like you're going right. to snap off their little feet off of the base because they're just not. <laughs> They're held in there exactly. so good. The one thing, I mean, we're ragging on it so badly here, not that it's not justified. The couple of redeeming things, I thought the combat system was actually kind of cool. And I we, we figured fun. that out yeah. by, like, maybe the second or third time through. Yep. That flowed in kind of an interesting way. They each have a different attribute, and you have these little chits that you flip over that you have a red, an orange, and a yellow. Yeah, and each one has a different set yeah. of stats, so there's kind of a rock, paper, scissors to whether you're going to be better at 
the fisting or the the defending what, or the, the yeah, brain. What's it called? The I guess just fighting. Yeah. <laughs> fisting. <laughs> Don't go there. Yeah. Don't look that up on the internet. <laughs> Sorry, I mentioned this. <laughs> Uh, but then the outwit, the outwit contest at the end, you know, just a battle of brains. Yeah, if, which that seemed that that seems sort of comic booky yeah. that you know you have these sort of trading of these big biffs and boffs between yeah. the two groups, and then it might come down to the person who's able to you know outwit the other person at the end. I thought that actually kind of rang true to the comic book spirit, but yeah. that's really the meat of the game, and it takes so long to get to that part. Like the the different crimes and the locations in New York. All that part's cool, but there's all this other stuff that builds up to that point that there's just, you're squeezing a very little f- bit of fun out of right. a lot of work. And this, that's this is just one of those, bad. if you're somebody who has 500 games in your game closet, this one is going to be hard to get out, you know, because you're not going to remember anything if you play 20 games in between now and then. Yeah. If you're somebody that only owns three games and this comes out every other week, you're okay, gonna, yeah. you know, maybe you're going to get so used to it that all the problems we had are going to not even be an issue. Yeah, with, you know, with the right audience, this game could still be a hit. There's probably there are definitely people who are really into comic books and really into strategy games. You have to be into both those things. Exactly. I think. If you do, Marvel and I, and Heroes think, is going to be the game for you. If you're not, keep on walking yeah, by. You'll and I think our advice choices. would be exactly the same as it was for Sheer Panic. Learn this from somebody that knows how to play it. Oh yeah, Please. it would be. You probably have a totally different opinion. <laughs> yeah, um, if you're not going to struggle through that, if, some, you, if you have that luxury, you may have a totally different opinion than what we've just given you. But exactly. So two games: <clears throat> Sheer Panic, Marvel Heroes. Um, both struggled horribly from a rule sense, but Sheer Panic was a great game. Sheer Panic's redeemable you know, despite its rules. You know, Marvel and, Heroes. And Marvel Heroes, like we said at the beginning, probably just has a very small target audience of which we were not members. Yep. For the money and time and fun, there, there are better ways to, to right. spend your time, I think. Backshelf Spotlight. These games need some love, and we're going to give it to them. The Backshelf Spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So, uh... Last week's uh, game connection, we have to deal with the contest that we run here right. on the spiel with the connections between the two games in the Backshelf Spotlight. Just remind everybody, the games from last episode were Fearsome Floors and Canasta, and there was a connection. <laughs> Unfortunately, there were no correct guesses, but we have a lot of incorrect guesses that are either very cool or very entertaining. Yep. Dave threw down that gauntlet, and uh, some people were pretty uppity and thought, yeah, I got this one. This one's easy. And <laughs> but no. No. I'm, I'm sure when, we, when, when it comes to the reveal, there's going to be some rolling of eyeballs. Oh, yeah. But before we get to that point, I, um, Stephen, I think you've got a lot of the incorrect guesses. Yeah, there are some... Definitely worthy of reading. We had some really good guesses, even though they were not the, the right ones. So Ben in California guessed, there's a variant of canasta called hand and foot canasta, and in Fearsome Floors, you construct the furunculus out of component pieces, including hands and feet. Um, 
that's awesome that's yeah, just great. that's very creative definitely out there you're you're thinking along the right lines he also said he was hoping that the connection the real connection would involve the classic chuck jones cartoon drip along daffy because it had a villain named nasty canasta but he couldn't figure out how to work that in <laughs> it's like that, that is, is awesome that's great totally not it but that is awesome <laughs> So Scotty in Mississippi had two guesses. Um, his first one was for each game, the designer's name is alliterative, which is an awesome thing That's to have guess. noted. Segundo Santos was one of the designers for Canasta, and Friedman Freeze um, is a designer for Fearsome Floors. His alternative connection <laughs> <laughs> is. Perhaps some hardcore Argentinian canasta players have developed an extremely aggressive style of shuffling that can result in frequent and serious paper cuts. After a particularly vicious round of this style of play, some players may find themselves sliding across slippery pools of blood. (laughs) Woo! He's uh, he's been talking funny. to Dave in yeah, exactly, Wisconsin. Exactly. I think. <laughs> he also says, if this answer is correct, a you are more crazy than I thought, and b I will definitely be the only winner. <laughs> exactly. Well, we're probably guilty of a, but exactly. No dice on b. <laughs> Literally, no dice. <laughs> uh, Victor had three guesses. Um, his first guess was one thing in common is that he can think of is um, that the game ends as soon as the first player goes out and has nothing left to play, i.e. discards or melds, or has all his tokens out, which is very true. true. That's a very legitimate uh, connection. Um, he also did spot the alliteration connection in the designer's right. names. And finally, I thought this was kind of a, a fun one, um, the faster and more recklessly you play these games, the more fun they are. <laughs> Which I I can definitely see that. That could totally be true. (laughs) Ankaboot in Malaysia guessed that the title of each game really has nothing to do with the game itself. Uh Which I can see with Canasta, but... Fearsome floors. floors. There is kind of a, you know, I mean, it's it's a little tangential, but there is kind of a connection, so... Cool. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So we had some great guesses from Mathen in Virginia this week. Uh, His most creative guess was that weaving was the connection. Uh, Canasta is made up... um, of weaves, uh, a basket, of course, and then um, the monster in Fearsome Floors weaves in and out as it moves. That's pretty awesome, Mathen, but still not the one we're looking for. Uh, his other um, good one was that uh, um, the number seven is significant. A canasta is made up of a meld of at least seven cards, and uh, the tokens that you move around on the board with the people in Fearsome Floors, their movement uh, totals add up to seven. Um, his, his goofy guess was that, uh, both games must be played with opposable thumbs, which isn't really true when you think about it, because you could play cards with cards between your fingers, right? And you could kind of move the tokens with your fingers, so, sorry, Mathen. Um, moving on, we did get a note from, uh, Crazy Dave, um, he, uh, was very crestfallen about not being, uh, the, the dice not falling his way with the dice roll, um, the last time. Uh, and him not being able to score a free set of spiel dice. So he guessed again this week. His guess is he got the alliteration with the two designers' names. And then his second guess was that both designers, having seen the definitive movie on Indiana, that being Hoosiers, failed to see how the Indianapolis Colts made the NFL playoffs uh, semifinals. Well... I can just say that uh, the designers had a little, a lot of lack of faith if uh, they didn't think the Colts were going to make it this far. And hopefully by the time you're listening to this, the uh, Indianapolis Colts are on their way to the Super Bowl. So let's keep our fingers crossed. Um, 
Lastly, we had a funny note from Adrian in Australia who uh, writes in and says, I can only assume that you guys work part-time at an old person's home, asylum, creche, daycare center, or zoo, or other place with people assembled, and that these are the two games that you play with the patients, inmates, or menagerie. Well, Adrian, we do uh, do the podcast from our padded cell, but they haven't let us out and uh, uh, down the hall to see if we can foist games on anyone else yet. So... World be warned. <laughs> Great guesses, everybody, but like I said, Dave threw down that gauntlet and no one has picked it up. Um, so those were some fun guesses. It's time time to pay the piper, though, uh, Dave. Oh. What is the actual connection between Canasta and Fearsome Floors? Well, believe it or not, both of these games have freezes. <laughs> Friedman Freeze is the designer of Fearsome Floors, and in Canasta, you can freeze the discard pile. That is... Take that. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) I know that you're wishing you could climb through your iPods and (laughs) strangle us about the throat, but we thought it was pretty funny. (laughs) I think it's pretty good. (laughs) So um, we encourage you this week, of course, we always play this game every week, and if anybody gets the correct guess between the connection in these games, you will win a pair of laser-etched custom spiel dice as your prize. All the winners will go into a hat and we'll draw one lucky winner. No dice this week, but good luck with the upcoming connection between Phoenix and Dragon Master. This should be very interesting. I think this will be fun. (laughs) So first up, Phoenix. It was published by Eurogames in 2003. Good news here, it's being reprinted as we speak. Oh, that's cool. So that says a little something about the game. Um, the game was designed by Zach and Amanda Greenvoss. It's for two two players, ages 12 and up. Retails for 30 bucks. You can find it for between 20 and 25 Rumor is that the reprint is even going to be cheaper than that. I don't know if that means cheaper components or oh, what, not. but we'll wait because I really do like the components to this. Um, this is Phoenix is a really unique abstract strategy game that I think is easily playable by anybody, which is really cool. It comes with a neat board that sits in between the two players. It comes with six large wooden cubes, 30 wooden pawns, 50 cards, and this cool little cloth bag. So to begin the game, the six large colored cubes are all put in the bag. They're all drawn out of the bag and then put in six spaces lined up in a row in the center of the board. Then all the pawns are placed in the bag and... Randomly, one at a time, each player draws out ten pawns and lines them up in the same order that they were drawn out of the bag on their side of the board. Now that you've got the game set up, the object in Phoenix is to arrange your ten pawns color-wise in the exact same order that the colors are of the cubes in the center of the t- in the center of the board. Now, of course, you get a handful of cards dealt to you, and the whole game surrounds centers around these cards which allow you to move the blocks in the center and to move your pawns on each side of the board. Some of the cards let you move your opponent's pawns. Some of the cards let you move your own pawns. It's really cool to try it. I always think of this as the serious version of guillotine because you're kind of (laughs) reorganizing your pawns. Yeah, that's a good analogy. So if you were to have, if the cubes in the center, we'll say, were like yellow, orange, and red were the first three. So for all the yellows that you have, you need to make sure to get them down to that end where the yellow. So you might have drawn four yellow pawns out of the bag because Mm -hmm. that's what's cool too. Everybody doesn't necessarily have the same color of pawns because it's random. Um, And you would have to have all four of those yellow pawns to start off your thing. But 
of course, as soon as you do put all four yellow pawns there, then your opponent's going to move the yellow block. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a really cool little game. Um, it's a two-player game. One thing I did want to say is, as I was doing a little bit of research on this, there is a card that allows you to flip-flop the pawns from either end of your rows. Mm. That's not actually the intent with that card. So mm. if you get this game, especially the first edition, because I assume they'll correct it in the second edition... What it was meant to do is for you to take the pawn off of one end, move it to the other, and now adjust the whole row down, which is a complete, huge, different thing. Yeah. So uh, with Phoenix, basically, I believe you play three rounds. So after you play the first round, you get victory points based on how many of your pawns were in the right thing, how many different colors of pawns did you have to get in the right order. Once you assign out victory points, you play again, and then you play again. Most victory points at the end of the three rounds wins. Really cool little game. Yeah, it's, elegant. It's I would so say. easy. You could teach somebody to play in sixty seconds. They, uh, unlike some of the games we have <laughs> talked about earlier today, the pictures and the icons on these cards are so easy to understand. You know exactly what you're supposed to do when you play one of these cards. Cool little game. Search it out. It's only been out for four years, but this is one everybody should own. Yeah, yeah, it definitely fits into that overlooked. You might have just yeah, overlooked it big time, and uh, and there was it was you should give it a second look. Yeah, definitely. What do you've got coming up? Uh, so my game this week is Dragon Master. Uh, it was published in 1980. Uh, Michael Gray is the designer. Uh, Milton Bradley and E.S. Lowe are the two different publishers that the games had. Three to four players plays in about an hour. So apparently this is the week for games that look like one thing but are actually something else. <laughs> you did what the king and his court is that the right right name? to court the king uh, right to court the king sorry and uh, and then sheer panic is kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, so to look at Dragon Master, you'd think that it's some kind of epic fantasy geek fest, not a tweak of a classic trick taking card game, but that's exactly what it is. The cards are organized into four suits: nomads druids, warriors, and dragon lords, and they have ranks ranging from king to fool. The cards are lusciously illustrated by Bob Pepper. You might recognize the art from last week's Uh Truckloads of Goober because Bob Pepper also did the illustration for Dark Tower. Very cool. Um, And I love the art is really cool. I mean, that's half of what makes this game just really, really fun, I think. Uh, Each player takes his or her turn as the Dragon Master. This turn is going to last five hands. After dealing the cards, the Dragon Master gets to set the rules for each hand. If the Prince of Dragon Lords is drawn, is chosen, for instance, then the player who pl- takes the Prince in the trick-taking part of the game must pay the Dragon Master. If the first and last is chosen, then the person who takes the first or the last trick must pay the Dragon Master. Um, if Wizards is chosen, then for each wizard you take, you pay the Dragon Master. You kind of get the idea here. Lastly, the Staff of Power combines all of the different scoring uh-huh. rounds into one massive scoring round where all those rules are going to apply. Um, the player with the most gems after every single person at the end of each person having a round as the Dragon Master is going to be the winner of the game. That's right, I said gems. The one, the other really cool thing about this game is the currency. It uses colorful plastic, kind of hexagonal shaped gems to represent uh, sapphires, emeralds, rubies, and diamonds. The gems will actually stack together and are insanely fun to play with. Um, you could keep score with a pad of paper, sure, but the gems add a kind of fantasy gestalt to the game that really kind of fe- seals the deal as far as the right. theme, in, in my opinion. 
Um, I have very fond memories of this game since I could always talk my parents into a whole night of Dragon Master since it was so much like every other standard card game that they were much more familiar with. But on the other hand, it was also a great gateway game for them because once I'd gotten them playing Dragon Master, I could slip in Talisman <laughs> or maybe a game of Illuminati. Right. And they, it didn't, the, the journey wasn't quite so far as, you know, going from Euchre exactly. to, to Talisman or Illuminati or something like that. So, you know, it's, it is just a basic little trick taking game with kind of a fantasy theme to it, but the, the bits are cool, the art is awesome, and it, and it actually holds up. I mean, it's a, if you like standard trick-taking games, you're not gonna, there's nothing not to like about this style game. And I like the fact that you're actually paying the, you know, you're trying to amass, if you're a Dragon Master first, that's all the money you're actually going to make the whole game, is what you're going to make in those five rounds. Right. And then it's just, how little can I pay out? Yeah. Um, which I think is kind of an interesting little twist on... on Otherwise, traditional right. kind of trick-taking game. So I would I I don't own this game. This is one that's in your collection, and I think it looks really cool. I was I surprised love you hadn't even heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> I love the components to this. I love the idea. I mean, if I was going to play a trick trick-taking game, I'd much rather get this out than just a standard deck of cards. Yeah, you know, it, it just looks like a lot of fun. I might have to hunt this puppy down. So remember, there's there's a connection here between Dragon Master and Phoenix, and we want to hear from you. Um, you can obviously go to the to the website now um, and put your comments there, or you could even put your guesses on the the new and improved upcoming uh, Spiel website, yep. um, which we'll have links to. But you can also send us email at Stephen. At thespiel.net. Or Dave at thespiel.net. And we'll be interested to see what you think. This one, uh, the gauntlet isn't quite so, uh, this is not quite so difficult. You know, it's it's been laid down, not exactly. thrown down <laughs> <laughs> this time. So uh, let, us, let us know what you think. Truckloads of Goober. What is Goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances... Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now, we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff, the Goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great Goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great Goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the Goobermeisters have for us this week. So this week's Truckloads of Goober was suggested by David in Los Angeles, and the game we're going to highlight is Dread Pirate. Uh, it came out in 2006. Dan Tibbles is the designer. Front Porch Classics is the publisher. It's a two-to-four-player game, probably about an hour to play it. This beautiful coffee table game comes packaged in an authentic wooden treasure chest and is played on a wonderfully illustrated cloth treasure map. You choose a ship a port of call, and you set sail in search of treasure. You're going to trade in foreign ports or sail broadsides to another captain and take your best shot. You want to be the first pirate to collect all the types of jewels and land on Dread Island to become the most feared and powerful captain of the high seas. Um, I, you know, anything pirates is already, you know, <laughs> I've already sort of predisposed <laughs> to like, so that's, you know, the setup. Do we setup. have any episodes where we don't mention <clears throat> something piratey? Um, very few, if any. <laughs> 
So we saw this game at Gen Con um, this last year, and it's striking even from a distance. It was like, ooh, what's that? <laughs> and um, it's they're cool metal pirate ships. Um, you're traversing across this cloth map to collect actual doubloons and jewels. Included with the game are four die-cast metal ships, a cloth map board, which kind of looks like an old you know, treasure map in just the, the style and graphics on it. Three knuckle bones, which are wooden dice. Oh, yeah. um, a custom wooden wind die, um, which is cool. 48 dread pirate cards. Four map cards. 50 replica doubloons. 120 gems, which are little glass like mana stone uh, pieces. And a captain's log. I, you know, it, as a game, it may be only one step above a kind of roll-and-move game, but I think here's a case where the goober can help take the game to the next level. Right. The the pirate theme is done so well, and the pieces would be so fun to play with that it really kind of puts you in the right frame of mind, and the game, game mechanics aren't really as crucial to the fun that you're going to have with this kind of game. I haven't played the full game yet. We got a, a demo right. of it at Gen Con, but the Goober alone, for the Goober alone, I'd certainly like to add this game to my collection so that we can pull it out for our annual uh, pirate party that we do every year. Yeah, um, I would take any game that comes in a wooden <clears throat> chest. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I'm just like, I'll just go out and grab my eye patch. That's all you're missing. If this game came yep. with eye patch, yep. you'd be in business. Get your little parrot and your eye patch, and you're ready to go. You baby. are totally, totally ready to go. So I know um, David mentioned that he had this one on order. So I'm hoping huh. that we'll get an actual report from maybe a game session from David once he's had a chance to give this the yeah the well, once well, over. I would, and, I would love and to hear. Play because I don't it, think so. I've known anybody that's played it. Yeah, it just looks so cool. It, you know, goober alone, it's it's worth it's worth looking at, and if you're goober whores like the two of us, you know that might be justification to get it by itself. But um, check out Dread Pirate, the game sommelier, or right game, right crowd. Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal, the game sommelier finds the right game for any crowd, age, experience, or personality. Each week, one of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right, the honor, to be called the Game Sommelier. So Dave, this week, if you remember, your challenge came from, it was sort of a co-challenge between me and Joel in Georgia, and your challenge was to find five games for a high school classroom that are educational without being educational, meaning lame. Cool. So let let me have it. What do you got for us? Okay, well, first I'm going to explain I picked each game based on three criteria, which are not unlike what you've just outlined. First of all, they have to be fun. They do have to be good games. They have to appear, as um, I remember Joel said, the principal walking yes, in. Yes. So they have to appear like they're educational. And the third one is that they really do need to be educational in some way, shape, or form. Okay. So the first game is The Motley Fool's Buy Low, Sell High. It's published in 2005 by Uberplay, designed by Rainer Kinesia, two to four players, ages 12 and up. Buy Low, Sell High is about making profits by buying and selling business stocks. You use cars to manipulate the prices of three types of stocks, oil, technology, retail. The three stocks have different levels of volatility. Technology is the most um, volatile, oil is the least, and retail falls in the middle. This is a really cool 
like kind of beginner look at stocks and how they you know how they work and everything. As far as the game's looks, if somebody came in, the board has Motley Fool stamped all over it. There's all these stock symbols and stuff. Surely everybody, including most principals, would know what the Motley Fool is. Yeah. They'll take one look at this and go, hey, cool. They're learning about the stock market. Yeah. That's pretty neat. And in fact, that is exactly what you're doing. It's kind of a light intro into economics as it relates to the stock market. It's not only a learning game. It's fun as hell. We played this and had a blast with it. So I yeah. think that would be something that would be great in a classroom. Oh, I, I I would agree. I give you a big thumbs up for that. And I think for those who don't know, the Motley Fool is like a, it's a radio show on public radio, and I think they may be on other sources too. Right. But it, they cover stocks and investing, and they all they have this kind of quirky, <laughs> very quirky sense of humor about them too, very and, and, and very entertaining. You know, making something that could be very dry and boring interesting and exciting and fun and uh how good a pairing up is that right. to have that those that kind of personality with that kind of game so cool. I, I could totally see that working in the classroom good, good job good deal okay the second game pueblo published in 2004 by rio grande games it was designed by wolfgang kramer and michael keesling it's two to four players ages 10 and up so in this American Indian-themed game, players work with each other to create a mighty home for the chieftain. You're a craftsman, but you can't let the chieftain see your trademark stones, or you'll be penalized. So during the game, the, chief, the chieftain will wander around the board, and he'll look straight across, and if he sees any of your blocks, you're going to be penalized. When he, go, gets, when he lands on the corner spaces, he's going to look down. So you're going to be constru- uh, constructing this chieftain's house out of all these 3D blocks that are these really strange shapes and sizes. Um, it's a really cool abstract strategy game, but that has this really cool American Indian theme wrapped around it. Basically, if somebody were to come in and watch you play in this game, they would immediately see the 3D geometric shapes, and also they would immediately see the sincere look of painful concentration on all the players' face and know that they must be learning something. Um, And what I think that you're actually learning in this game is kind of an intro or a sneak peek into spatial awareness. I know that when I played this game for the first time, it just blew me away because I wasn't thinking in that 3D you know, way of, okay, if I play this piece here, oh, but you can see it to the left or you can see it above. It's just really, really cool. I think this came and went and I didn't hear a lot about it, but this is one of my favorite games to drag out. Actually, yeah, I, I would agree. That's one that I, I enjoy playing a lot, and I'm glad you went with the math angle rather than like the social studies oh, yeah, angle because no, no. uh, <laughs> the theme is cool, but it doesn't really just, add much to the game, and you just might paste it on, not have a leg to stand on there. Exactly. But I think from a math standpoint, and from spatial geometry, right? Totally good choice. Thumbs up. Cool. Number three, Byword, published in 2004 by Face to Face Games. Designed by Sid Saxon, is for one one to four players, ages eight and up. In Byword, you pay money to buy letter tiles, and then you form words and attempt to sell those words at a profit. <laughs> it's really, really an awesome game. It's actually this actually is um, the publish the publication by Face to Face is a reprint from a classic Sid Saxon thing that is just an awesome, awesome game. If you own any word game. This is the word game that you need to own. Yeah, beyond um, Scrabble, this would be the second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it is just awesome. Um, as far as looks go, 
as soon as somebody walks up to the table and sees all these letter tiles, they're going to actually probably think it's Scrabble with yeah, the exception totally that, that it doesn't have a board. So they're going to recognize easily that obviously you're doing some kind of spelling or word-building word education. And in fact, that's exactly what it is with the addition of a little basic mathematics to go along with it. But it is basically a word-building game and a great one at that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how can you argue with a classic <laughs> like that? I mean, that, that would be an easy sell to any principal walking in. They would not bat an eye at Thinking, oh, they're they're learning. Ugh, as scary as that seems. <laughs> okay, number four, Shakespeare the Bard Game, <laughs> published in 2004 by Uberplay, designed by Richard Heffer and Mike Siggins. It's for two to five players, ages 12 and up. As an Elisa, <laughs> as an Elizabethan theater entrepreneur in the early 600s, it's your goal to pack the house every night. You're going to have to buy scripts from Shakespeare himself. Then you're going to have to stage these extraordinary dramas. You're going to have to find a company of actors. You're going to have to purchase all the props. You're <laughs> going to have to find a backer. You're going to have to acquire all the cash. It is just a really cool, cool game. As far as looks go, the board is made up of all these really cool graphics of Shakespearean theaters, all these other cool Shakespearean locations. The cards are just chock full of lines from all the Shakespearean plays. There's also an aspect that has all the questions, like some trivia questions, easy, medium, and hard based on Shakespeare. So it's going to be really cool when you take a look at this game. It has Shakespeare written all over it. There'll be no question what's being learned in this game. So obviously, one step further, what are you learning? Duh. Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and more than that, I mean, there's a kind of applied learning. I think this probably is one of the best of your all your choices because cool. you could see how you could integrate that into if you're teaching about, you know, Absolutely. Shakespeare plays that, I mean, having a theater background myself and you working in a, a theater <laughs> and stuff, understanding, I mean, you read plays in the classroom and they're just sort of dead pieces of, of text that, you know, they're living, breathing things that are meant to be alive with all right. these other aspects that come into it that, you know, I think it's lost so much, especially when you put somebody like Shakespeare up on the pedestal that you forget that these were actually things that were meant to be, you know, profitable for the people making the plays right. out there and, you know, all those different elements adding into it that, I mean, you're learning about that as well as about Shakespeare. And, and I actually, think that's as an, awesome. As an aspect of the game, you actually get to deliver these lines from these plays yeah. and be judged on your delivery, <laughs> which is just excellent. Yeah. <laughs> um, definitely big thumbs up. I like that a lot. Cool. Number five, the final game tonight, Pizarro and Company. Published in 2002 by Rio Grande Games, designed by Thomas Lehman. It's for three to six players, ages 12 and up. In, in Pizarro and Company, players are royalty, bidding for the services of six famous explorers. You got Magellan, Columbus, Pizarro, da Gama, Cook, and Polo. <laughs> Obviously famous explorers. Um, what is really cool about this game, at first looks, when anybody comes, the board is chock full of information that I didn't really even realize till I went back and took a look at it. It's got the pictures and names of each of the explorers. It's got the dates that they were born on, when they died. It's got the names of the places they explored. So just at a quick look-see, you're going to come over and you're going to see, as a principal, all these explorers and all this amazing information about them just, bam, right out in front of you. Um, what you're actually going to learn, though, is quite different than any, any history. <laughs> it's actually an auction mechanics that are really heavy in this game um, that are just really cool. I love any games with auctions, and this is a great 
introduction to that style of game, and you're going to mix in a little bit of knowledge about all these explorers. Really cool. I love this game. I don't know if a lot of people know about this game. It kind of, you know, small package came and went, but I like it a lot. Yeah, that's great. I think it's really good that you've covered kind of the different classroom bases, too. You've gone kind of the math route and the English route, and now you've kind of, you you actually ended up doing the social (laughs) studies kind of route, because, you know, even though it is kind of an auction mechanic, because you could, you know, if you were doing kind of a unit on any of those explorers or stuff. Right, exactly. Um, I could see how you could use that as a way to kind of have people just demonstrate that they know, or you might even be able to modify the game a little bit to, to incorporate some more of your lesson and, and stuff I have into to admi- the game. I have that, to admit that would that be cool. I did not know a lot about some of these explorers, and when I played this game for the first time, it was an eye-opener. The um, the game also comes with a little background information that was very helpful. You know, in the rules, yeah. it was really cool. So any of these games, I think, would be awesome in a classroom. And boy, I wish I was in the classroom where where we yeah, got to play. Yeah. <laughs> well, you did a you did a good job. That's that's five five thumbs again. I, cool. You know, I wasn't really sure which way you were going to go with, <laughs> with these five. So, and you went ways that I I didn't expect. So that's even even better. But I only get half the half the. I only really can give you half a thumb. Oh, that's true. Joel, that's true. Joel really is the final. I only earned two and a half thumbs. So, <laughs> so we're gonna have to hear back from Joel. So, uh, hopefully, we'll get an email or he'll post something to the to the site to let us know what he thinks about uh, your choices. Um, I think it's time for yep, me to take my medicine now. Uh, yeah, that, that brings me to the fun part. <laughs> so, for your challenge for next episode, is to find five games for a ten dollar budget. These games have to be currently in print they can't be cheap ass games ouch and they have to be as meaty as possible you're not getting the games just because they're ten dollars or under these have to be gamer games as meaty as you can possibly get them okay so good luck with that ouch man (laughs) i don't know if there's five of these out there (laughs) well hmm well that's You've got me kind of stumped right now. I can think of maybe one or two, but <laughs> five is going to be kind of tough. But I, well, I'm looking forward. Give me a little time. I can come up with something. I'm looking forward to this challenge because this is a list that I think a lot of people want to know. Yeah. A lot of people are on a budget, and a lot of people want some serious games. You know, they don't want to just go out and pick up Yahtzee. Yeah. Or something like that. So I'm really yeah. looking forward to seeing what you can do. Now, up can with. this be like sale price? Not necessarily. I mean, that, so that, if we can find that, you're for absolutely that price. right. I forgot to mention that. There, it can be retail or. If there's price. like some amazing discount deal exactly. out there that I can, okay, good. Exactly. Shoot. Not not like at eBay where you're bidding on. No, them, no. But, but if but I find some place where you could go and plunk down ten bucks, absolutely. Okay. Yep. Cool. Well, I'm I'm a little stumped, but I <laughs> I, I think I can recover. Cool. <laughs> Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. Okay, everybody, welcome to the mailbag section of the show. This week, it's kind of a little short. We only got about four or five emails, but um, good ones at that. Yeah, yep. So I think we'll start off with an email from Bill, who writes in with a battle lore correction. (laughs) A big one. (laughs) Exactly. He says, you were discussing bow-armed infantry and stated that they ought to be less effective in melee than infantry armed with short swords. This is, in fact, the way it is. Short sword infantry can potentially score a hit on a unit color and a bonus strike symbol, while bow armied infantry never hit on a bonus strike. So the odds of getting a hit drop from 1 in 3 per dice to just 1 in 6, meaning 
Bow-armed infantry are about half as effective in melee combat. In addition, if they moved in the same turn before battling, they would roll one less die in combat than a short-sword infantry unit of the same color. He's absolutely <laughs> yeah. 100% right. So, as Stephen so eloquently said, the, the, obviously the problem is not with the game, but in our stupid minds and just not reading that correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was just a total goof. We actually played it correctly. Yeah, we played it right. But I don't know what, and when we were discussing it, somehow we just got off on a tangent. And, right. I think uh, at one point in the gameplay, we had thought that that was the case, and that just stuck in, in our minds, and we yeah. brought it up, and we were completely wrong, and... Thank you very much, Bill, Absolutely. for correcting us. That's awesome. Anybody who finds us screwing up like that, please <laughs> let us know because we want to we wanna be accurate, and usually we are, but it's good to know that you're paying attention and stepping up when we don't. Um, another Battle Lore um, question came in from John in Madison, our last Backshelf uh, uh, winner, actually, uh, cool. Madison, Wisconsin. Um, he says, I really liked your review of Battle Lore. My son is seven and a half years old and can play Memoir 44 fairly well. How much of a step up is battle or in complexity? Um, I would say not very much at all. I would think that if he, especially if he's familiar with the command card system, right. and you start at the beginning of the scenario book with the first historical scenario, because they kind of do a really good job of um, stepping you through the rules and adding rules as you go through the scenarios that i mean the first couple scenarios are going to be very similar with the main difference being in memoir you've got lots of units that have ranged weapons and in uh, battle lore you're dealing in medieval combat so that most of the units don't have ranged weapons so that the the strategy comes down to units smacking into each other and trying to get the advantage where in memoir just basically that comes down to strategy though and not the actual rules of the game exactly so i would think especially because you could start at the beginning of that scenario book and just slowly introduce the elements of the lore and the war masters or war council as time goes on i don't think you know yeah i don't think he'd have a problem i think the scenario book is designed specifically exactly for this type of thing in mind i think he's going to um, be able to start playing this very easy. Yeah, I mean that's pretty amazing for a seven and a half year old yeah. to be doing memoir. So if he's yeah. already there, you're. I think you're well. He's well into battle or no problem at all. Definitely. What What do you got now? Um, we have an email from Zach in uh, North Carolina. He says, "Have either of you played or heard of a neat card game called Ruckus? It started out as a simple Christmas gift, but has grown into a craze at my house. In addition to our favorite, which is Carcassonne." It seems similar to the classic card game Speed in that there are no turns, but it is different and unique to anything I've ever played. One thing it really has going for it are the simple rules that allow the dealer, and to a lesser extent other players, to sort of fudge the game in a fun way. He says he recommends it, and it's probably also cheap as well. Well, I do remember hearing something about this just before Christmas that Mm -hmm. is something that knew and hit the market and actually had a lot of people... Really raving about it. It's got some it. good buzz around so, it, that's for sure. So I have not actually played this game. Me either, yeah. Nor seen copies of it, nor will I probably ever, just because <laughs> I am not a speed, I'm not a fan of speed card games. I and like I, them. And I think that's because I suck at them. <laughs> I can just kick Dave's butt at any of those speed <laughs> games. But, uh, but we've heard a lot of really good things. And also, I want to mention that. Um, Zach already has sent us a pirate themed variant to Ruckus. So he's gone to town to create his own yeah. you know, version of this, which is awesome. Yeah, it, I think he said it started as kind of a variant, and he's actually thinking about it being almost a separate game now because he's 
spend so much time on the rules, which, hey, that's cool. you know? Right, and it seems like the way he wrote this that, I mean, he hasn't played the game yet. I mean, he's just read the rules, and before even owning a copy, he's already got this variant knocked out, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely cool. We'll have to keep us posted on that, Zach. Um, we also have an email from Robin in Cambridge, England. Um, he brought up a couple of great game books that he got as Christmas gifts and that he wanted to recommend. Uh, one that Dave almost got as a Christmas <laughs> gift this year, uh, entitled Dice Games Properly Explained by Rainer Knizia. Um, and the other one is A to Z, The A to Z of Card Games by David Parlett. Um, they both uh-huh. look really good. They're available on Amazon. The designer of Hair and Tortoise. Uh-huh. Um, cool. So that's... Uh, those look really interesting and cool. Um, I also received two of Sid Saxon classic game books for Christmas uh, that I thought I'd mention. I got a gamut of games and card games from around the world. Um, so definitely look for a game book segment sometime soon on one of yeah, our shows because be we've that's we've been remiss in not having a. Uh, either a back shelf or some excuse to talk about some great yeah, game there are some books. Wonderful there's game some books out really there. good ones out there. I, I would love to own that one by Rainer Kinesi. Yeah, big um, time. He he said he had just started to scan through it and he had already found some really like really I, cool stuff in it. We like his stuff so much, and me being addicted to dice, man, I really <laughs> need that book. <laughs> That's the the killer combo for yeah. Dave. <laughs> um, so just a couple quick notes here. Um, thanks to Joel Noah. Victor, Mathen, and Ankaboot for their suggestions for future Backshelf Spotlight, Goober, and Sommelier segments. I don't want to spoil the surprises, so we're not going to say exactly what cool. their suggestions are, but they've all written in with some really good suggestions that um, it's going to take us a while to get through all of them, but that's a good problem for us to have, right. so keep those suggestions coming. You know, your your contributions make the show that much stronger because you're always surprising us by bringing up games and, and ideas that we wouldn't think of otherwise. Exactly. So it's great to have you all being, you know, contributors to the show as, as well. Um, before we wrap up, I also wanted to say we're getting lots of really good feedback on the new website so far. The consensus is that everybody likes it, so woo! I'm That's glad great. to hear that yeah. for as much work as I put into the dang thing. <laughs> um, but please feel free to start using the comment and forum system, too. We haven't had as many takers so far on that. Um, or if it's not working, please let me know for you because that's, I mean, part of my goal with this kind of dress rehearsal with the the new website is to work out all the possible kinks that I can before the official switch so that the more you help me kind of put the new website through its paces, the less potential downtime the site will have once we port it all over. And that's the site instead of having these kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, <laughs> two different sites going at once. So um, just... Please start commenting and fill those forums with cool stuff. If you have comments, you know, obviously it's still a work in progress, but you will definitely help help us make it that much better and stronger by kind of <laughs> helping us through the dress rehearsal to the to the real show at the, at the end. And, and yeah, that's th- not th- very far away. It's 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 coming very soon. So. I think you guys are going to love the site when Steven gets everything finished because everything he's discussed with me, he's working on some really fun stuff. It's so. going to be cool once we get it all 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 squared away and buttoned up but thanks all as always for listening hope you enjoyed enjoyed this episode we'll we'll be back in another couple weeks with another edition of the spiel um so remember whether it's the roll of a die the turn of a card or the flip of a tile you don't have to play to win you just just have have to play. play